0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. A number of years ago, there was a man by the name... Of Judas, who lived in the city of San Francisco. Now, I know basically nothing about him. I don't even know a last name. I don't know originally where he was from. I don't know anything about his family, his background, his career, his experiences. But what I do know is that Judas made a mistake. I don't even know all the details of that mistake, but I do know that it was bad. Bad enough, in fact, that Judas felt like he had to go. He had ruptured his relationships and fractured his friendships, and he felt like he had no choice but to leave. Now, I don't know about you, but I would guess That someone somewhere in here probably feels similarly. Feels like the relationships have been broken to a point that it is just time to go. That's a very difficult feeling to have. But today, we're going to talk a little bit about that question. What do we do when the worst happens. In fact, we're in the third part of a three-part series, and for the last couple of weeks, other people have been up here in the pulpit answering that same question. Two weeks ago, it was Pastor Philip who answered that question. When the worst happens, what do God's people do? Well, they respond with faith. And then last week, Pastor Carl was up here and he answered the question, when the worst happens, what do God's people do? Well, they cling to hope. And today we ask the same question once again. When the worst happens, what do God's people do? How do we respond? How does he respond? What kind of steps do we take? What actions do we take? How are we going to answer that question in the context of broken and damaged relationships? Well, Maybe you've come today. You've come and sat in these pews and you have a spouse. But a spouse who has broken that sacred vow and destroyed that trust, and you sit here today, and you don't know what you're going to do. Or maybe it's different. You have a coworker, a colleague at work who has done something maybe a little shady, even unethical, and you're not sure how you're going to respond to that. The trust is no longer there, it's gonna be a long road to building that back up, and you're not sure how you're going to respond. Or maybe for you it's a friend, someone who is near and dear to your heart, who has done something they were supposed to come through for you and they didn't, and now instead you're kind of left high and dry and you don't know what you're going to do. But what you do know is that the trust has been broken, shattered even, and you are not sure how to respond. Well, I don't know where you are. Maybe for you it is a spouse, a colleague, co-worker, friend, boyfriend, girlfriend, child, parent, brother, sister, or any other number of people who are in your life, and you don't know how to respond. But the situation is familiar to you? Well, today we're going to take a look at that. And the fact is that you are not the only person to have ever dealt with broken relationships and ruptured friendships. In fact, Jesus, on his very last night on earth, dealt with this very problem. And not only did he deal with it, he dealt with it twice. So we're going to take a look at what he did on how he handled that and how he decided to live his life in response to a couple of people who did some things that really damaged his relationship with them. So we're going to join Jesus. We're going to join him near the very, very end. We're going to open to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, and we're going to read what happens there. We're in the midst of the Last Supper and Jesus is speaking to his disciples. So we begin in verse 18. John chapter 13, verse 18 says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Many of you are probably familiar with what happens next. You probably know where this story is going and who betrays Jesus and what happens, But keep in mind that this is only one of two instances. In fact, there is a second thing that happens on this very night, just a little later in the same chapter. So we continue on in the same chapter, chapter 13, but this time we'll read starting from verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The year was 1536, and a man by the name of William Tyndale was on the run. You see, he was on the run from England and the English crowd, His crime, you ask? Translating the Bible into English. And Tyndale would be the first to translate it into English while using primarily the original Hebrew and Greek texts that had been discovered at that point. But Tyndale was on the run. He was in trouble because they were after him for his life. He had made his way to Antwerp in Belgium, where he was hiding out He had found some other English merchants whom he could trust who were hiding him, who were being very careful not to let his secret go. And he was hiding in the home of a man by the name of Thomas Points. And he and Points were living together there. They were hiding. They were keeping Tyndale away from the spotlight. Everyone was trustworthy. The secret wasn't getting out. Well, another man eventually made his way into kind of the same hiding spot. His name was Henry Phillips, but unbeknownst to everyone in the group, Phillips was also on the run from the English crown. You see, Phillips had been given some money that wasn't his, told to take care of it, and instead he'd gambled it all away. So he had uh, not only none of his own money, he had none of the money he was supposed to have that was someone else's. So he was also in pretty deep trouble. Well, Phillips became fast friends with uh, points, with Tyndale, and with all the other uh, people around there. And they were living their lives, and they were living them well. But at one point, Points himself had some business to take care of, and he was going to be gone from Antwerp for a month or so. And lo and behold, Phillips was approached by the English crown and offered a significant amount of money to betray Tyndale to England. And Phillips, being in the precariously financial state that he was in, accepted So when points left on business, Philip put his plan into action. He took the 18 or so mile ride from his own residence to where Tyndale was staying, and he brought some officers with him. But he needed a kind of ruse, a kind of plan. And so he approached Tyndale and he said, hey, why don't we go grab a bite, let's get some lunch, and Tyndale accepted. Well, they got ready and they were on their way out. And as they were on their way out, Uh, Tyndale was asked by Phillips if he could borrow some money and Tyndale graciously offered up some money. He said, here you go, you know, take care of yourself. I understand. And then they were on their way out. Well, in Antwerp, Belgium, the streets and the alleyways are very narrow. So narrow, in fact, that sometimes there is not enough space for two people to walk side by side. You have to walk one in front of the other. And that's kind of how the street was in front of the home. So they were exiting the home, the door opened, Phillips said, go right ahead, and Tyndale stepped out into the street. And as he stepped out into the street, he looked out and saw the officer standing there and immediately realized what was happening. Tyndale, of course, tried to backtrack into the home, but Phillips was standing in the door and would not let him in, and in fact pushed him out into the street where the officers grabbed him and tied him up with rope and took him away. Points, who had been away on business, was told as soon as uh, he could to get back, and he rushed back to Antwerp and did everything in his power to save Tyndale's life. But alas, it was too little, too late. In early October of 1536, Tyndale was condemned of heresy and burned at the stake it would be only a few short months later in 1537 that the king of England at the time, King Henry VIII, would decree that the Bible be translated into English for the entire nation. And much of the translation that they used had been Tyndale's own translation. Now, I wasn't there, and I am certainly not William Tyndale, But if I were him, and if I could get into his mind for a couple of moments, I think I might look at Henry Phillips and say, why? Why would you betray me? I thought we were friends. I even loaned you money because you were in a dire financial situation. Why did you have to do that? But the truth is, that's not quite the question we're asking today. We've all been there. We've all felt those feelings of betrayal somewhere in our lives. Maybe for some, we are feeling them right now. We've all been somewhere where someone has broken the trust in a relationship, and we feel that it is hard to rebuild that and to learn to trust again. But the question we're actually asking today is, what do we do in response to that? What do you do when it is you that has been betrayed, your trust that has been broken? Well, to answer that question, I think we must return to the text. In fact, kind of nestled between the two texts we have already read is another portion of the text, somewhere that Jesus speaks, and I think he gives us an answer. So let's return and read once again, this time verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the command is simple. Love one another. But the truth is, if I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Jesus right now, I would look at him and I would say, Okay, Jesus. I understand, but respectfully, that answer is a little unsatisfying. When my trust has been broken, the last thing I feel like doing is loving the person who has broken my trust. And instead, I feel feelings of anger, of fear, of distrust, of disdain. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, Jesus might say, Here's the thing. You should love that person anyway. But there is also some practical information or advice that I may be able to extend to you in this difficult time. Three things, in fact, Jesus says, three things you ought to remember. All right, Jesus, I'm willing to listen. Lay it on me. Okay, says Jesus, number one, feel the feelings. Don't push them away, don't ignore them, feel the feelings. Okay, well, what does that actually mean? What do you mean by feeling the feelings? Well, Jesus would respond, I know you pretty well, and I have observed your life, your comings and your goings, and the things you do, and the truth is, Austin, you could use some help in feeling your feelings. I've observed you at work, And the truth is, at work, you do a decently good job at problem solving. When conflict or problems arise, you have an issue, you have a list of tasks you complete, and then there's a solution. It's fairly methodical, even robotic, some might say. But I have observed, says Jesus, that you have attempted to take this kind of mode of problem solving into your marriage. It doesn't always work nearly as well in that context. In fact, he says... Sometimes in a marriage, people don't just want a solution so quickly. Sometimes they just want to be heard, and they want their feelings validated. So remember, says Jesus, when you're in the midst of those feelings, feel them. Don't forget to sit there and feel those feelings. They're important. They're valid. Okay, Lord. I will try. (laughs) But what else? You said there was more. Jesus says two. The second thing I want you to do is name the problem. Don't just let it be water under the bridge. Don't just forget about it. Name the problem. Imagine, Jesus says, you go to your doctor. You sit there in the office, they run some tests on you and the doctor finds that through the course of those tests that you have cancer but because the doctor doesn't want to offend you, they come back and they say, you look great, everything is fine, keep living your life. That's ridiculous. No doctor would do that. Name the problem. If it's there, just not naming it doesn't make it go away. It's still there. Or maybe, imagine going to a mechanic, Jesus says. You're getting ready for a cross-country road trip with some family and some friends for vacation. It's gonna be a good time. So naturally, you take the car to the mechanic to do a checkup, make sure everything looks good, no issues. The mechanic takes it, takes a look around, and he notices that there is a small crack forming in the engine block. The mechanic comes back and says, looks good, 2,000 plus miles, no problem. A mechanic would never do that. A mechanic would name the problem and say, you have to fix this. This car is not going to survive that kind of drive. Jesus says, name the problem. Don't just let it slide, because just doing that doesn't erase it. It still exists. So that's two things Jesus said. Feel the feelings, name the problem. But then there's a third thing Jesus says. He says, okay, after you do those two things, what I want you to do is I want you to build them a golden bridge of retreat. And I would say, well, that's an interesting choice of words, Jesus. In fact, it is one that I recognize pretty well. See, a couple of years ago, I took a class entitled Leadership. Leadership by Dr. Scott Cormode at Fuller Theological Seminary. And I remember that as part of that class, we had to memorize different terms for different quizzes and tests and so forth. And one of the terms in the section on conflict resolution it was just that. Build them a golden bridge of retreat. And what it means is that when you get into a situation where you are right and they are wrong, that you build them a golden bridge of retreat. In other words, don't hammer your point home, because when somebody else is wrong and they've been back into a corner, as nice as it would be if they just said, "I'm wrong and moved on," usually, people will fight it out. Because in the end, they've got nothing left but their dignity and they don't want to lose that. So Jesus says, build them a golden bridge to retreat so they have an opportunity to save face even when they're wrong. If you don't do that, you will end up damaging the relationship far, far more, even though you are right. Well, says Jesus, I think you understand what I'm saying. Feel the feelings, name the problem, build a golden bridge of retreat. Those are the three main things. And therein, you still learn how to love another person, even in the midst of betrayal. You're not ignoring the problem. You're not letting it go. You're confronting it, but you are still loving them well. Okay, Jesus, I get it. I take your points. I take them well. I think they're good recommendations, But I have one last question. Did you do this? In your darkest hour, in your moment of greatest betrayal, did you follow your own advice? Because we can look, we can read it, and we can check your work. Did you do what you said you were going to do? Well, why don't we take a look? Let's turn back to the text. Let's see if Jesus had the ability to follow his own advice. So the first thing, of course, feel the feelings. When we open the text, let me reread one quick verse here. Verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, I don't know if you noticed it there. It's a very quick phrase, easy to miss. Jesus was troubled in spirit. Jesus felt the feelings. He didn't push them down. He didn't push them aside. He felt them because they were there. So Jesus, just like us, understands the importance of feeling the feelings and understanding that those are important. They're part of what makes him human. They're part of what makes us human. Feel the feelings. But that's not all. The next thing we have is name the problem. So once again, let's return to the text. This time we'll start reading in verse 22. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. So Jesus does just that with Judas here. He names the problem. He has a very clear, very concise conversation with Judas and basically says, I know what is happening here. There's no miscommunication. Both Jesus and Judas, the two parties involved in this conversation, are well aware. No issues in the communication there. Jesus names the problem. And then he does the same thing with Peter. If we go down just a few verses further down, in verse 38, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus names the problem with Judas. Jesus names the problem with Peter. He has two very candid and very short conversations, and everybody involved is fully aware of the situation at hand. So one, Jesus has felt the feelings, and two, Jesus has named the problem. He hasn't ignored it. He hasn't pushed it to the side. He hasn't forgotten about it. It is still very much there. But then we have the final point, Does Jesus build a golden bridge of retreat? Why don't we read this last little portion of text here, starting in verse 28. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, When we read the text, when we read about this moment at the Last Supper of what's going on between Judas and Jesus, it might appear that there is a very obvious and clear sign as to what's going on. After all, we as the audience, we as the readers, know we can tell because it's told to us. But when you really read the text, you notice something kind of funny in there. The other disciples are confused. They think Judas has gone out to buy food for the poor, buy supplies for later in the festival. They don't quite understand what's happening here. And the reason for that is because of what we see at the Last Supper. So let me explain that to you for a moment. When we go eat lunch or dinner after church today, we're going to go home or go to a friend's house or go somewhere to eat, and we're going to sit around a table. and Everyone's going to be there and have good conversation and good food and a good time. But that's not really how the Last Supper was structured. It's not even structured like we see in the famous Da Vinci painting with everyone sitting there at the table. What actually happened was they would have entered into a room and there would have been a slightly raised platform off the floor. Then they all would have laid down around it and each person would have reclined into the person on their left. And so that's what we have here. We don't know exactly which order everyone is in here, but we do know for three people in particular what order they're in. First, you have Jesus reclined there, and reclining into him, into his chest, is John, the disciple. And then Jesus himself is reclining to his left into the chest of Judas Iscariot, the one who would ultimately betray him. So imagine that scenario, if you will. Jesus has his head right here on Judas. Their heads are very close together. Therefore, they're able to have a conversation that no one else can hear. They're able to whisper back and forth, say things in very hushed tones in such a way that they can communicate very clearly and very easily, but no one else around that table will be able to hear it. And here is where we get to the third point. Imagine that conversation happening. Judas and Jesus going back and forth for a moment or two. And Jesus says, go out, go do what you're going to do. But in this moment, what Jesus has done is he has acknowledged it and he has let Judas have that golden bridge to retreat because he hasn't humiliated him or embarrassed him in front of all of their friends. He has kept it a secret. He said, listen, I know what you're going to do. You know what you're going to do you still have an opportunity to change your mind. And in case you do, I'm not going to humiliate you in front of everyone here. I'm going to allow you to keep that social standing that you have in this group because you are my friend, you are our friend, and you are an important part of this group. Well, again, you all probably know the story and you know what happens next. Judas will go through with it despite that conversation, despite Jesus feeling the feelings, despite Jesus naming the problem, and despite Jesus building that golden bridge of retreat. Judas will go through with it anyway. And in the end, we read in the Gospel of Matthew that he felt such tremendous guilt and remorse that he ended it all. He committed suicide. Despite the incredible love that Jesus showed for him in that moment, he decided it was too much. But we have that second person, Peter, and his story is not over just yet. He will also disavow Jesus and disown him. He will go out there and he will deny Jesus' name three times. And the text says, again in the Gospel of Matthew, if you read it, once he realizes what he has done, it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly and then Jesus will get marched up that hill to Calgary. He will get crucified on that cross. He will serve as a sacrifice for Judas, for Peter, for you and for me and for everybody else. Then he will lie in that tomb for what is probably the darkest period of our history for three days. But he will rise again and he will come back and he will have one more appointment to keep with Peter. We read about it, At the very end of John, in John 21, Jesus will approach Peter, and they will have a conversation, and Jesus will ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter will answer in kind, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I love you. Three times he will answer. And in that moment, Jesus builds Peter that golden bridge of retreat. He gives him that opportunity to save face and to be welcomed back into the fold. And Jesus says, you, Peter, are forgiven, and you belong here. Jesus didn't just ignore it. He felt the feelings. He named the problem, and then he built him that golden bridge of retreat so he could come home. I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe you find yourself in that place, a place that is a little bit similar to the way that Jesus found himself in those days. You have a person in your life, someone who's very close, but someone who has broken your trust in a way that is very, very tough. And Jesus says, love that person. But part of doing that means not ignoring your own feelings. Feel the feelings. And part of doing that means not forgetting about the problem. You've got to name the problem. And another part of doing that means not hammering your point home, but instead building them that golden bridge of retreat so they can come home. You remember Judas? Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas From San Francisco. I don't know anything about him, but I read a couple of sentences about him in the preface of a book entitled Judas and Jesus, written by Ray Anderson. Anderson dedicates just a couple of quick moments to this at the beginning. He tells that he was one day using the restroom in a restaurant in San Francisco and he saw something there on the mirror. He saw in the mirror written in big block letters, Judas, come home, all is forgiven. So today, or this week, or this month, when you have someone at home you have to deal with, someone who has done you a great disservice, a great wrong, after you have felt those feelings, and after you have named that problem, and after you have built them a golden bridge of retreat, will you, like Jesus, be ready to go into that bathroom and write on that mirror, Judas, come home. All is forgiven. Find more podcasts, videos, church events and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.